it just goes to what happens when you when you create a provision of law that you, you, you try and squash a flea with a sledgehammer. That's really what they've done. That's true, yeah. So. Proportionate response. Hi, you're listening to Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast. And in this episode, we're talking with the head of our competition and antitrust team in Canada, Chris Hirsch, about changes to Canada's competition laws that are coming into force this June. Last year, the federal government made several changes to the Competition Act. The key change that we're talking about is the introduction of a criminal provision that will prohibit certain types of labour-related agreements, specifically no-poach and wage-fixing agreements. As of June 23rd this year, it will be a criminal offence for employers to fix, maintain, decrease or control salaries, wages or terms and conditions of employment, so-called wage-fixing agreements. It will also be a criminal offence for companies to agree not to solicit or hire each other's employees. The penalties are going to be severe. They include jail terms of up to 14 years and or fines at the discretion of the court. Now, the issue for businesses is that no poach provisions in particular are prevalent across many standard commercial agreements. For example, NDAs in a merger transaction or also franchise agreements, joint ventures and other collaboration agreements. The Competition Bureau recently issued draft enforcement guidance, which it is accepting comments from stakeholders on until March 17th. Now, it is hoped that there will be clarification over the new law's application and the availability of the Ancillary Restraints Defence, or the ARD as we refer to it in this episode. However, there still remains a lot of uncertainty over how these provisions will be enforced in practice. So Chris Hirsch explains the changes and the key issues the companies and their compliance teams should be considering to prepare for the new law. As the head of the firm's Canadian competition practice, Chris provides strategic counsel to clients on all aspects of competition law, from M&A to criminal matters, abuse of dominance, pricing and distribution issues. Chris also has an active competition litigation practice representing clients before the competition tribunal and in transborder investigations. Thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. So this episode is about the new wage fixing and non-solicitation agreement provisions that are coming into force in June of this year. So I want to start with you telling our listeners why they need to pay attention to this episode. What are the changes that are coming in and why are they significant? Great. Well, happy to be here and thanks uh, for that intro. What's important is is the the provision is a – it's basically a two-line provision or two-line change of the Competition Act, but it's already causing a bit of unrest uh, amongst a lot of companies because of the potential impact it's going to have on you know, some of their contracting practices. So what the government's done is that in June of 2022, they passed a law that will come in force June 2023, and there's a criminal prohibition for any employer – who with a non-affiliated employer, and we'll talk about that in a second, conspires, agrees, or arranges, so we'll use the term agrees, to either fix, maintain, decrease, or control salaries, wages, or terms and conditions of employment, or not to solicit or hire each other's employees. So for short form, I'll call the first section, the fixing or maintaining salaries, as call that wage fixing, but remember that also includes terms and conditions of employment, so much more than just wages. And I'll call the second provision not to solicit or hire no poach. 
And so that's the offense. The way it works is that entering into one of these types of agreements is illegal. It doesn't matter whether it has an effect on competition. Entering the agreement is the offense. This agreement is then, in terms of how the Bureau will enforce it, we have what's called the ancillary restraints defense. I'll use ARD for that. And that's been on the books for a while. It's not an exception. It's a defense, so it's a second step. It's a defense to a criminal prosecution where the companies at issue can take the position that the restrictive agreement, i.e. the wage fix or the no poach agreement, is part of a legitimate agreement between them and is reasonably necessary and ancillary to the purposes of that legitimate agreement. In terms of how this happens or what happens is the, the competition bureau will be the first – they're the investigator, if you will. So let's assume that they either, for whatever reason, they find an example of a wage-fixing or no-poach agreement, or somebody complains. The Bureau is a very complaints-driven organization. Mm-hmm. Somebody complains to them. The way this works is that the Bureau will do the first assessment. They will do the of whether there has been a contravention of the prohibition on no-poach or wage-fix, and then they will do a first assessment as to whether they think the ancillary restraints defense applies. And what they can do at that point is they can, you know, try and work something out with a party, some sort of resolution. Or if they think that it's problematic, if it's just sort of a pure wage-fixing agreement, they would have to refer a prosecution to the public prosecution service, mm-hmm. who would then conduct its own assessment about whether to actually bring criminal proceedings in a particular situation. Chris, I think we're going to circle back on a couple of the technical pieces that you just mentioned, but let's first address the motivation. This is a significant imposition in the law. What's the inciting event or the inciting concern for these new provisions? Right. So the question was, like, how did we get here? Why did the government feel the need to introduce these? And I think it's important that they threw them into budget implementation legislation. They were not vetted. They were not open for consultation. They were just sort of put into this budget implementation legislation. They were not reviewed at any degree. The impetus, there's kind of a couple of impetus, impeti. Um, the first is that about a year and a half ago, there was a story that broke about several executives from major grocery chains having had conversations about rolling back pandemic pay increases for their employees. And they got a lot of negative press. They got called to testify before committee in Ottawa. And everybody said at that time, this has to be against the Competition Act. And it turns out that the way our Competition Act is drafted, in particular the the criminal provisions, they don't capture agreements relating to labor. Our Competition Act criminal provisions capture supply-side or sell-side agreements not what we call buy-side agreements. And when it comes to employees, employers are purchasers of labor as opposed to sellers of labor. So our laws, we didn't have a specific wage-fixing or no-poach provision, but the existing provisions that we had regarding you know, agreements relating to pricing or supply um, did not apply. And you know, there was a, you know, a bit of a political and you know, populist uh, concern that 
how can it be right to allow employers to fix wages uh, and not be subject to some sort of law, preferably criminal law. So that's sort of how you get wage fixing into there. Also in the U.S., the U.S. Uh, Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice have taken a much more aggressive approach over the past few years regarding labor-related agreements between employers. In the U.S., there have been cases where, where there were allegations of, well, again, naked no-poach agreements. Uh, there's been some in the healthcare sector where hospital networks agreed not to hire each other's nurses or other service providers. And there was one several years ago in Silicon Valley where all the Silicon Valley tech companies got together and basically agreed not to poach each other's employers within certain sort of fields of expertise because there was a war for talent. And they basically decided that it would be better for all of them to limit how much poaching took place. So that's kind of how we get the no poaching. And also, like I said, our closest neighbor is the regulator is taking a more aggressive approach to labor-related agreements between employers. High level competition act is a law of general application, right? There's no threshold for the application of these provisions. It doesn't apply just exclusively to public companies or companies over a certain size. It's everyone. <laughs> Correct. Right. That's, you know, basically this is, you know, there's, there doesn't have to be a competitive effect. Doesn't matter how big or small you are. The, the agreement is the offense. From a practical perspective, the Competition Bureau is often more interested in taking aggressive enforcement action against larger companies from a profile perspective, but that doesn't mean that smaller companies are, are insulated in any way. Earlier, you mentioned the ancillary restraints defense, the ARD. I wonder if you could talk us through that in more detail because, well, naked wage fixing agreements aside, no poach agreements arise frequently in the broader context of commercial transactions. Take us through some examples of where you commonly see no poach agreements. Maybe explain how the ARD might enable these types of provisions to be upheld. That's right. Wage fixing is, you know, relatively uncommon. And I think it will be harder to harder in many cases to justify a wage fixing agreement as being ancillary and necessary to a broader agreement. No poaches arise all over the place for legitimate agreements. They arise in often in the types of non-disclosure or discussion agreements that permit discussions between parties to negotiate a merger, where the only reason why people are become being put in contact with key employees is as a result of the discussions between the parties relating to the merger. These are also very common in the context of joint development or joint ventures, where you have two companies partnering legitimately for, you know, to either do research and development or to engage in a business initiative where, you know, it, again, it puts their best and brightest together, people who might have some proprietary information. And in fact, you know, the companies might only trust each other if they agree that they can't steal each other's best and brightest employees. And you also see it very commonly in outsourcing contracts where, for example, many companies hire a specialist IT firm to help them, again, develop a particular software application or engage in some other technical project, where, again, it puts people in touch with, with employees who have very, very specialized technical information, people who are very hard to replace. And so, again, it's a protection that we need to work together very, very closely. And, again, we think it's legitimate that we should each have the right to protect our employees for a period of time, there's several instances where there is a, at least arguably, a legitimate need or legitimate purpose for restricting one company's ability to hire the other company's employees and vice versa. 
And you also mentioned earlier about the ancillary restraints defence. In the examples that you've just given us um, where no poach agreements are very common, can you just explain how the ancillary restraints defence or the ARD operates, might operate in those contexts? So it's more than the ARD has been on the books since about, I think, 2009 or 2010. It was put in place during the last major reshuffle of the Competition Act, which was actually in 2009, 2000, depend, depending on the, on the provisions. Uh, there's no jurisprudence uh, on the ARD, so it's been on the books. There's some guidance about how the Bureau will apply it in respect of the other criminal provisions in the competitor collaboration guidelines the Bureau has published. That's why you haven't seen enforcement. You know, there's lots of non-competition provisions in the context of a sale of a business. Or, again, joint venture agreements often include provisions that restrict the parties to the joint venture from competing with the joint venture. So, so there is a little bit of guidance from in terms of how the Bureau will enforce or apply the ARD, but there's no case law. And that's, you know, as a lawyer, that's what's concerning because the guidance documents the Bureau puts out are non-binding and they're often generally quite vague. And in fact, the Competition Bureau has published draft guidelines regarding how it will apply the ARD and how it will seek to enforce these provisions. And quite frankly, they don't provide that much guidance. They're not in some ways, they're useful. In many ways, they leave more questions unanswered. And so there is an ongoing consultation process with submissions that can be filed up until, I think, March 17th. But so the Bureau will put out some guidelines and some guidance, I should say. The question is how good it is, because right now, the at least my view is that the guidance document they prepared leaves a lot of gray. And the gray is where companies are incredibly uncomfortable, especially given that we are talking about potentially criminal conduct. That's interesting that there's never been a decision on the application of the ancillary restraints defense in, in any context. And I think that's because, you know, the to be fair to the Bureau, I think that they haven't gone, sought to apply the existing criminal provisions. For example, the, the price fixing provisions or agreements to restrict supply or market allocation agreements. I don't think they've gone after sort of the provisions that you would see that might be technically offside those provisions, but subject to the ancillary restraints defense. I think the Bureau has acknowledged that, again, that non-competition provision in the context of a sale of a business, that is a, a clearly a legitimate type of protection. It's clearly in the context of a sale agreement, which is a broader legitimate agreement between the parties. And, you know, they don't want to get into sort of second guessing people, you know, and they don't want to sort of say, well, we think it should, it should have been six months and not 12 months in those situations. And also it may reflect the fact that people in those situations aren't likely to complain to the Bureau because if the buyer's happy and the seller's happy, then no one complains to the Bureau. And the Bureau, you know, these agreements are generally speaking private. Most of these agreements are private or a lot of them are. And, and so they're not, you know, they're not looking to go out and, and bring sort of questionable criminal cases. So I think that is helpful in terms of trying to understand where the Bureau might come at this from a practical perspective. But again, the types of agreements that we've been dealing with in the past, again, price fixing, customer market allocation, supply limitation, those, you know, and the types of situations that the Bureau hasn't sought to apply the law or hasn't sort of put people in a position where they need to argue that the ancillary restraints defense applies, I think those have been much more clear-cut cases. Right. Like it's, you know, it's 
Whereas the, these provisions, again, I think wage fixing is different than the no poach provisions because it's often, you know, wage fixing will, is much more like a price fix. And so, again, there may be fewer cases where that is going to be subject to an ancillary restraints defense. It's what's really, I think, fussing people from the clients we're talking about is how do they go about entering into sort of no poach and non-solicit agreements or no hire agreements, given how many situations where those are legitimately viewed as important to have in the context of their dealings with another company. The problem is here, why people are so concerned and why the ancillary restraints defense is getting so much more attention is because these no poach agreements almost exclusively live in broader agreements. You know, there's not a lot of what we call, again, naked no poach agreements out there. But there's tons of legitimate agreements where the parties feel it's appropriate to have some protection. It was so clear under the existing provisions what was clearly offside, what the Bureau clearly wasn't unlikely to view as problematic. So I think the no poach provisions, all of a sudden people are thinking about, well, I've got a business behavior that I have engaged in for years and years and years that I think is important from a commercial perspective to protect employees from being hired. And so I think that this is a situation where that this this provision, I can say, is getting a lot more attention than it's ever gotten before. And so companies are wrestling with the fact that I feel I still need to, even though there's a criminal prohibition against this, I can't just ignore the risk. So how do I contract around the risk such that the ancillary restraints defense is more likely than not to apply because I need to protect my, my talent pool? Chris, at the start of this discussion, you referred to non-affiliated companies and how these provisions only apply to agreements between non-affiliated entities. What's the difference in application between affiliates and non-affiliates? So, so that's that's important because uh, under competition law, generally, it's it's in, if companies are affiliated in in my world, that means companies are under common legal control, sort of fifty plus one percent ownership. You're not really a different company in that case. You're, you can't conspire with yourself. You can't wage fix with yourself. You don't agree with yourself. And that's why, you know, you see like a 50-50 joint venture, you know, that's a situation where neither party, that joint venture is not an affiliate of either party. Because, again, you have to own more than 50% to be an affiliate under from a competition law perspective. Is that true legal control test as opposed to some other sort of de facto or sort of sense of semblance of control test? The types of concerns that you've outlined are the same kinds of concerns that animate people in seeking, for example, you know, tax comfort letters. What's the ability here to get a pre-approval or a blessing from the Bureau on a deal? Is that feasible here? So you can get, the Bureau does have an advisory opinion program, and you can get an advisory opinion, but there is a fee to that. But also, there's a process involved. In addition to timing, you're going to have to sort of prepare a submission to the Bureau explaining especially if it's a close case, which is the only ones where this matters, explaining what you're doing, why you're doing it, and asking the Bureau to bless it. The Bureau is an enforcement agency, and you know they are a conservative agency. See, if people want 100% comfort, this is the only way they're going to be able to get 100% comfort. But there's also the concern that the Bureau may take an overly cautious approach when being asked to bless something as opposed to having to make an enforcement decision after the fact. And so it's a it's a process that is not inexpensive. It's a process that, again, the Bureau may take a much more cautious approach than may be warranted, especially early days. 
and there's a time a time involvement. And the other thing is, how useful is this? Because it's not like you can get a blanket approval for all of the non the no poach provisions you might want to enter into, right? Whether a no a particular no poach is going to be caught is highly fact specific. If you really wanted to get 100% certainty, you'd have to do it every time you entered into an agreement. I'm being a little bit facetious, but you know, the, every agreement's different. The what might be reasonably necessary in the context of the of the, the broader agreement may change depending on the broader agreement. So if you repeatedly contract with one or two firms for very similar projects, then maybe you could get some comfort that the no poach provisions you have in those agreements could shelter under the ARD. But if you're a company that enters into multiple agreements of this nature, then that's just not practical. So again, it's the more significant the agreement at issue, the more important it is to have a good no poach in the agreement, the more that advisory opinion process may, makes, might make sense. But it's not going to make sense for smaller agreements or, or sort of all of the agreements where you might legitimately want to use a no poach agreement. So, Chris, can you explain to us what the potential penalties are for a breach? And what's the exposure for companies, directors, and officers? The penalties, because concurrent with coming into the force of these provisions in June 2023, the government has maintained the current you know, prison sentence of up to 14 years, uh, although we don't have a strong history of sending people to jail. But certainly that is a, a penalty that does exist. And they, they're going to increase the fines so it's that they're fines in the discretion of the court. In practice, that means potentially very significant fines, although the court will use the normal sentencing or fining approach that they would use in terms of sort of the type of conduct and the and the nature of the you know aggravating mitigating factors. In fact, the largest fines levied under the Competition Act have been under provisions where the fines are in the discretion of the court. And in terms of who is likely to go to jail, uh, again, the government are. Public Prosecution Service has not historically sent a lot of people to jail for contraventions of the Competition Act, but it would be primarily at risk would be people who were directly involved with the conduct or knew of the conduct. So if you had a situation where, let's say, the officers or the directors of the company didn't know this was happening or this was happening sort of at a level below them, at an operational level, it would be you know, unlikely for a director to be sent to jail. But certainly the person who was entering into the contracts could, is, is more likely to be subject to often imprisonment. Typically speaking, people do enter into plea agreements, and often those plea agreements, the company is the one who sort of makes the plea, and they often shelter employees from individual criminal prosecution or jail. So again, we don't have a strong history of that, but you know, certainly that is a possibility, and it, all it takes is a different approach from the enforcer and from the prosecution service to decide that they want to start sending, sending stronger signals. One thing I want to ask you about is, is information sharing and where this sits with these provisions. I'm thinking about mass recruitment activities. And let's say in any kind of industry where there is kind of graduate recruitment activities taking place, there is, albeit informal information sharing potentially that goes on between various companies in that industry as to who might be an appropriate candidate or what conditions may be being negotiated for particular uh, recruits at that time. And I'm just wondering how that practice of information sharing, which isn't necessarily an agreement to fix employment conditions or to agree not to take a certain recruit as long as somebody else doesn't take another recruit, but it's still, it's still close to that line. And I'm just wondering 
how that practice might square with these new provisions, particularly when you bear in mind the provision that the Competition Bureau can infer a criminal arrangement based on circumstantial evidence. Right. So this is, you know, this is not unique to this particular set of provisions. This applies equally to sort of exchange of sensitive information between companies, generally speaking, with respect to, say, pricing or customers. And the the draft guidelines currently say that the Bureau will consider what we call parallel conduct, which is not illegal, facilitating practices. So whether you're sort of not agreeing, but sort of the wink and the nod situation, sharing sensitive employment information or taking steps to monitor, that can be sufficient, to your point, as circumstantial evidence that there's an agreement. And what they do in that situation is they would look at what sort of engagement the parties who have been alleged to have entered into one of these agreements have had, and they would compare and contrast that with their actual conduct before and after the, you know, inappropriate, for lack of a better term, engagement. Some of these sort of practices are sort of the the fact that people haven't been overly focused about sort of having these types of discussions is a sort of thing that people do need to think about from a compliance perspective. The other situation that I think this is quite relevant to is that many trade associations do some sort of HR benchmarking studies, which can include things such as what's your average increase in salary? What's your bonus range? So I think it's really important that when I use the shorthand wage fixing, the provision covers other terms of employment, and the Bureau's guidance that they put out, again, it's not final. It's not the law. They've said that this can include job descriptions, allowances, uh, per diems of per diems and mileage allowances, non-money compensation, working hours, location, non-compete clauses, or other directives that may restrict an individual's job opportunities. And the Bureau has said that its enforcement is generally going to be limited to those, and I'm quoting from the draft guidance, terms and conditions that could affect a person's decision to enter into or remain in an employment contract. And that's, you know, quite broad. Question whether a criminal court would take the same view, because as a matter of law, criminal statutes are read narrowly and not expansively. And so, but certainly the Bureau in its existing draft guidance document says it may take a very, very broad approach. So it's you know, so when we talk about sort of HR benchmarking approaches or what HR professionals can discuss, uh, you know, amongst themselves, especially where they're members of the same industry, people do need to rethink how they go about those sorts of projects. And again, this was just an area that people didn't have a lot of concern about before, and now they have to think about what they can do, whether they can do it, and what safeguards they should have if they're going to do it. So we're recording this in February 2023. If the last six months have shown us anything, it's that the Competition Bureau is intent on making sure everybody understands it's willing to throw its weight around. And it makes you wonder if there's going to be a showcase action to let everybody know that these provisions are real and they're going to be taken seriously and enforced. What are you saying to clients now, Chris, in terms of best practices to get ready in this next few months and get ready for a world where these are potentially realistic penalties and consequences that they could face if they run afoul of these provisions? In terms of agreements that are being entered into already now, you cannot simply insert the boilerplate provision. And I focus on the no poachers because, again, wage fixing is very, very uncommon. The only situation I can think of where that might come up is in the context of a 
a company who is sourcing employees or a staffing company that the salary paid to the employee is, a, is part of the negotiated deal. And there are also other provisions uh, related to sort of compensation, employee compensation. But again, um, that's a very specific situation. So in terms of no poaches, do you need a no poach? That's question one. Like, is this something that you were going to put in simply because it was the part of the precedent or boilerplate or you've done it in the past? Do you need to do this? If the answer is yes, we still think it's very important to have a no poach for the reasons of, you know, because we need to protect our people, because, again, we there's a legitimate interest in working together with another company. And both companies believe it's appropriate to have a, a reciprocal wage or no poach agreement. We'll talk about that in a second. Get back to the reciprocal piece. Okay, let's think about how to scope that properly because this, we can't just say, you know, the standard, any employee two years post, up for up to two years post agreement is good enough. So what we're doing is we're, we're playing with the variables. You know, how long do you think is really legitimate in terms of do you need this? You know, is, is one year sufficient? Restricting the types of employees to whom it applies because again many of these are drafted very broadly it's a sort of any employee restriction okay let's say any you know employees above a senior a certain sort of seniority position employees who you would only have come into contact as a result of this engagement you're having with with one another so that you're not you know you're not trying to be overly broad employees who have proprietary information employees who've worked on the project so we're trying to be much more focused about what is legitimate you know, to the extent that a no poach is appropriate, what's the legitimate interest you're trying to, to protect? And what is the most reasonable, least restrictive way to protect that in the circumstances? So it's it's not a business as usual. It's You need to be much more thoughtful. You can't just slap that same boilerplate provision in and assume you're going to be fine. And I think the one point I was raising is that the law only applies to reciprocal no poach agreements. And that's because the prohibition is on not hiring each other's employees. But the Bureau's guidance document says you have to look to the totality of the company's engagement with each other. So if you've got company A and B and they've got an agreement, and in that agreement, company A says they're not going to hire company B's employees, that's a one-way no poach. That's not subject to the law on its face. But if the same companies have an agreement where company B then says, I won't hire company A's employees, so you've got two separate one-way agreements that if you were to put them together, you would effectively have a reciprocal no poach. The Bureau has said that they will consider those situations. You know, you can't sort of cleverly contract around this to create what appear to be one-way agreements that when read together are effectively a, a two-way agreement. I, Andrew, also mentioned the increasing tendency of the Competition Bureau to being very proactive in investigating these new offences under the Competition Act. How do you see this actually working in practice? Do you see the Competition Bureau relying on whistleblowers more, or do you see um, more proactive investigations taking place? So, again, so this is just conjecture. You know, given the experience with sort of how the Bureau has managed, sort of, again, those types of agreements, the non-comp agreements or non-competition provisions in the context of the sale of a business, or even non-competition agreements in the context of employer-employee contracts, you know, they have not gone after the sort of, with any degree of um, vengeance, if you will. The Bureau has a, a lot on its plate. I think they will try and be reasonable. I think the 
you know, I don't think them sending out flying squads to force companies to produce all of their agreements to them so that they can look for offenses in this area. I don't think they just simply don't have the resources to do that, nor do I think they have the inclination to do that. So I think the ways that this will come to the Bureau's attention, I think primarily will be through whistleblowers. Whistleblowers, we say, you know, people who are, you know, well-intentioned, if you will. There's also potentially strategic whistleblowers, people who have entered into a no-poach, who feel they've been forced to enter into it and who want to get out of it. Do they go to the Bureau or do they simply tell somebody, hey, we don't think this is enforceable. We think this is a, you know, this is potentially a criminal violation. Do people sort of use the Competition Act as a sword to get out of agreements that they don't like. So I, but I think whistleblowers are going to be the primary source of any enforcement action. The other way something might come to the Bureau's attention is if you're engaging with the Bureau in an unrelated matter, but you have to disclose contracts to them. In the course of that, for example, in the context of a merger review or some other investigation, does that raise potential red flags? So, Chris, can you tell us about how this is going to apply to companies' existing agreements that are entered into before June 23rd, 2023, when the law changes? Will these be subject to the new law at all? And what approach should companies or their compliance teams take to reviewing their existing agreements? The draft guidelines, again, they're sort of not terribly clear. And what they say is that the provision is going to only apply to new agreements entered into by employers on or after June 23rd, 2023, with a caveat, and I'm quoting from the guidelines, as well as to conduct that reaffirms or implements older agreements. That is incredibly unclear, and it's a real problem. Let's say you've got a pile of agreements that could be caught by the provision, might not be able to shelter under the ARD. If you simply don't enforce them, is that good enough from the Bureau's perspective? I don't know. If you seek to enforce them, even if the term of the agreement or the provisions of the agreement are overly broad, but if you attempt to enforce or only seek to enforce them in a way that is consistent with the application of the ancillary retained defense, is that okay? So it it's, does not give companies that much comfort about what they can or can't do or should do with respect to their existing portfolio of agreements. And for some companies, the concern can't be underestimated because there are companies who have thousands of these agreements. They have standard terms in agreements that are negotiated or, or signed at various levels of the company. There's no central repository. And so that is a big, that is probably the biggest problem uh, for companies. And the funny thing is the companies who are most concerned about this are the companies who are the ones who are most likely to want to comply with the law as a general proposition. Obviously, if you have a wage-fixing agreement, then that's something you should discontinue before June 23rd, 2022. But again, it's it's really what's really fussing the, the business community is, is the no-poach and non-solicit provisions they have. In fact, in Canada, there's millions of agreements that have these provisions that uh, again would be prima facie illegal and might be too broad to shelter under the ARD. So that's where I think the business community and the legal community are asking the Bureau to provide more guidance for companies because it would be a shame if companies sort of undertook unnecessary compliance expense simply because the guidance that the Bureau gives is very unclear. And we should just note that, that the consultation process on these guidelines is ongoing until March 17th and after there may well be changes and clarifications made to those guidelines. Well, certainly that's the hope because right now there's a lot of ambiguity and, you know, when it comes to ambiguity, 
in respect of a criminal provision of the law, that is, you know, that's not good from a, a business perspective. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com slash disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.